Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the awesome Yamaha YZF-R7. The comfortable Supersport R7 is now available in white for 2022. Check out the gorgeous new YZF-R7 at your local Yamaha dealer or of course at yamahamotorsports.com. In this week's first segment, senior editor Nick DeSena gives us his impressions of the new Suzuki GSX S1000 GT. Suzuki's new sport touring machine is clearly a lot more sport than touring. So I'm curious to hear whether Nick thinks the GT without the saddlebags is an improvement over the plus version that comes with the bags. In the second segment, we welcome the astonishing artist Jack Armstrong. His story is as crazy as it gets, and his zany stories would defy belief if they weren't actually true. Jack made friends with Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat in the New York art and music scene back in the day. His work has sold for literally tens of millions of dollars. Yet, Jack is also a hardcore motorcycle guy, and part of his journey inspired him to paint the Harley V-Rod, the so-named cosmic starship worth over $50 million. A motorcycle as an art canvas, that's an interesting idea. While Armstrong's art may take you out of your comfort zone, the energy of his work is apparent. They say the more you look at it, the more you become aware of the power behind the strokes and in the laying down of the paint. The cosmic starship will have a different meaning to everyone. If it speaks to you, has made you think, or spurred you on to talk about it, then the artist has tapped into your subconscious successfully. So, whether you're into art or not, whether you're into the Harley V-Rod or not, Jack's astonishing energy comes across in this chat. I found him to be a fascinating and really likeable guy. So sit back and have some fun with this one. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. The Suzuki GSX SS1000 GT, which comes in two variants. You have the GT, which is what we'll be discussing today, and then you have the GT Plus. And the only differences between the two are its price. Uh, the GT Plus is a little bit more expensive, but the the critical difference between those two models um, is going to be color matched uh, saddlebags on the GT Plus and the standard GT that we'll be discussing today. Instead, it uses some runners to 
cover up the area where those bags would actually mount and just gives it a little bit of a cleaner look. And of course you are saving a good bit of coin as well. The GT plus comes in at $13,799. Meanwhile, the standard bike that we'll be talking about today is $13,149. It, it's an interesting motorcycle because the sport touring segment in the United States especially has been really dominated by adventure-styled motorcycles, we'll say. So if there were sport touring motorcycles that would come into the market in, say, the past decade or so, you'd see a lot of these models being derivatives of ADV bikes. So you may not have standard 17-inch wheel sizes, and the whole form factor would be more relative to an, an adventure motorcycle. For example, uh, think of the road-oriented Africa Twin models or something like the S1000XR um, or, or even many of the different multi-strata models. Uh, those tend to be ADV influenced and not the traditional sports tour that we have here. So when you kind of talk about the handling, you do have to bring up the fact that, you know, it is that classic tried and true um, aluminum twin spar frame that's also featured on the GSX S1000, the upright naked bike, um, as well as that, that K5 999cc engine. A lot of the materials that we've seen over the years from Suzuki, a lot of their tried and true parts uh, coming back into play, but they're really going after that classic sports touring category that a lot of manufacturers have kind of forgotten about. So everything that we're going to be talking about here today falls into that, that segment. And if you want true comparisons to this motorcycle, I would say that the Kawasaki Ninja 1000 is the direct competitor of this bike. Whereas when you start looking at other models, say like the Multistrada variants, the Multistrada Pikes Peak, BMW S1000XR, those are in a completely different price range. Whereas this bike right here, the Suzuki and the Kawasaki are basically neck and neck. And if we had the um, Honda, I think it's the Honda NT1100, which is being offered in Europe, that would be another very close competitor as well. However, we don't seem to be getting that in the United States just yet. So okay. talking about the handling and all that, you know, we're dealing with fully adjustable KYB fork and a semi-adjustable shock in the rear. So you have preload and uh, rebound. Then you have that die cast aluminum frame. The cool thing that I think translates across a lot of the GSX S1000 bikes is that you do get that very familiar sportiness coming through the chassis. It's definitely not the most agile motorcycle on the market. And there is some weight in the front end, which some people will probably initially take as a criticism and I wouldn't necessarily rate it as such that weight kind of carries through and gives you a lot of confidence in the front end it might take a little bit effort to get it on the, the edge of the tire and you know things like that it likes direction in that sense so it's not this unwieldy beast please don't mistake what I'm saying but that confidence in the front end just allows you to push into the corners and really trust what's going on underneath you it's really just creating a good deal of mechanical grip. So 
you know, if you ride a much lighter motorcycle, say something in the middleweight category, you'll find that that bike is able to flip around and transition much easier than something here. However, Suzuki has really seemed to hone in on stability, stability, stability. And that's pretty much what I get it, get out of this front end of this bike. And, you know, whether you're commuting or kind of ripping around in the canyons for your Saturday or Sunday ride, that's something that translates to both ends of the spectrum. Because you're, if you're looking at commuting versus sport riding, those are two very different activities. And the fact that we have a chassis that kind of plays at both ends is something that I think translates to this traditional sport touring application quite well. Certainly the, you know, the versions of this model that I've ridden before are just simply the straight GSX S1000 versions without the, the GT um, fairings on it. And the thing that has always stood out has been that front end feel and the intuitive feel of the Suzuki chassis, which obviously they're well known for. So I'm curious, the, how does the handling of this bike compare to the other Suzuki offerings? In other words, the sort of naked GSX S1000 and even the Katana. So I'll, I'll leave out the Katana just because it's been so long since I've ridden it. Right. Although it is closely related to the GSX S1000, which I have much more recent experience with. Okay. Now, the main thing that I'd really highlight there is the weight differences between the models. Um, with the GSX S1000 GT variants, we're looking at a motorcycle that's in into the 500 pound realm. Um, according to the spec sheets, that would put you at about 521 pounds, uh, fully fueled, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, the geometry as well is, is in that sport that that's sort of sport orientation. So again, sport touring instead of ADV touring. You look at the wheelbase figures, that's 57.5 inches. The rake, 25 degrees. Trail, 3.9 inches. If you were to tell me that these figures were on any number of naked sport bikes, I would probably believe you because that's, that's generally where you see things. Maybe the, the rake is a little bit longer than what we'd usually see, but it's in that realm for sure. So if you talk about the GSX S1000 naked bike versus the GT sport touring bike, yeah, I, I would say the naked bike is a little bit quicker on its feet. It doesn't have as much mass behind it. It doesn't have the uh, full fairing that we've mentioned before. But importantly, both of those bikes sit a little bit lower. I feel like these motorcycles kind of hunker to the ground a little bit. Maybe, maybe a bit lower than than some of its competitors when you think about the naked class as a whole some of these motorcycles are getting a bit tall think things like the super Ducar, for example that's i would say on on the the larger side of the spectrum in that class sure. but overall you know the seat height that we're working with here is 31.9 inches so that's just on the cusp of 32 inches you add a little bit of weight from the rider that's going to squat down just a hair more. And it, it is a lower slung motorcycle. You kind of sit within it and overall it is, well, just a little bit lower. That's, that's a big thing. You know, the, my big criticism of, of these ADV style bikes 
especially the road oriented ones. So certainly the BMW XR1000 springs to mind. And I absolutely loved that motorcycle. I really had no criticism other than the hassle of getting on and off it. And I'm a long legged guy. I've got a 33 inch inseam and climbing on and off of the XR meant I had to leave it on the side stand, step on the inside peg and then sort of clamber on board. And the passenger has an even harder time. And, and, and so I definitely have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about these difficult to get on and off bikes that are never ever going to see off-road in any way, shape or form. And I'm very glad that Suzuki have started to address this um, street version of sport touring because it seems eminently sensible. I think it, it's going to open the class up to a lot of people who just simply couldn't use an ADV style sport Dora. Yeah, that, and that is one of the major criticisms with any of the ADV style bikes. So because of their form factor, which is derived from a taller, leggier ADV motorcycle that typically has much longer suspension travel than what any street going motorcycle would need, you get additional height and that's mainly for ground clearance. Now, I would mention that the street oriented versions that we're talking about, so say the S1000XR, the Multistrada Pikes Peak, for example, uh, some of the Africa Twin variants that, that spring to mind, uh, or for example, even the um, uh, Suzuki V-Strom 1050XT, if I think that's the name. Yes. At any rate. Yep. The XT is probably one of the lower of the bunch, but you know, when you talk about the XR, the Multistrada, yes, these are incredibly tall motorcycles. So they do restrict riders of a certain size. And so that is one of the negative things that I would say with these ADV style sport touring bikes uh, that we've seen really um, popularize the, the US market specifically. In Europe, it's a different story. Sport touring bikes are actually still popular over there. Now, the sort of how that translates here is, well, something like the, the Suzuki GSX S1000 GT and its naked bike variants, or the Kawasaki Ninja 1000, those traditional sport touring motorcycles, you know, a lot more people are going to have access to them. So riders of a shorter stature, uh, riders that do want a slightly more sporting riding position, which is something that I would say you get on the traditional sport touring bike that we have here versus the ADV uh, styled sport touring motorcycles. I would say that you're sitting in a slightly more canted forward position than you would on, you know, something like the S1000XR or even, you know, any of the BMW 1250 RTs or quintessential sport touring bikes, which are much more upright and neutral in a seating position. In this case, you are canted a little bit forward, but it's not overly so to where you're really weighting your wrists, although it is there. So how that translates to me is it pushes the Suzuki and the Kawasaki kind of into a more sport-oriented sport touring. Sure. You know, it, it underlines that sport segment because, again, these are sport, uh, you know, sport bike-derived sport touring motorcycles as opposed to ADV-derived sport touring motorcycles. Or you have that third pillar, which is a touring motorcycle that has some sportiness injected into it. <laughs> right. This is really focusing on that on that sport. 
um, aspect. Do you prefer it to the GSX S1000? In most cases, yes. I would say unless I was going to go sport riding constantly uh, in the canyons, and that was my only you know thing that I would be tackling on that motorcycle, then I would probably prefer the naked bike just because it's a little lighter, you know, a little quicker on its feet, but essentially kind of the same taste. Sure. Now, the reality is we use our bikes for a lot of things. And even if we're commuting out to a location to meet friends, to do whatever you want, something like the 1000 GT and GT plus offer a lot more versatility. So to me, thinking about this as a you know potential buyer what i would want out of a motorcycle and the possibilities that lie within it this opens a lot of doors so i would say if for my money this is a little more appealing you do get wind protection you do have luggage options even when we're talking about the base model it comes with the runners to clean up the look of the subframe in that area but you can pick up the the color matched cases for a few hundred dollars more and I would say that's actually a pretty good value. If we look at other brands, uh, BMW, Ducati, et cetera, et cetera, color matched luggage is going to be pretty pricey. And then you can just start looking at aftermarket options that probably aren't gonna be color matched. You know, one note on the wind protection, you do get a significant amount of wind protection here because it is a essentially a fully fared motorcycle. Um, but the windscreen is non-adjustable. Now for me, five foot 10 inches, my sort of, you know, terrible posture and seating position and everything. <laughs> yeah, I have the same problem. I'm okay. You know, I, I find the, the standard wind protection that this bike offers to be more than adequate. Now, the windscreen is non-adjustable. They do offer an extended windscreen. It's bolt-on, obviously, so you have to swap the two out with tools. I would say in 2022 with a sport touring motorcycle, an adjustable windscreen is something that I would like to see. Um, to me, that's a bit of an oversight. Now, why they couldn't do it, I have no idea, but that's the way it is. Well, it all comes down to price. You know, the more, the more bells and whistles you put on it. I mean, this is, this is an inexpensive motorcycle for what it is. I think it opens the sport touring category to those who otherwise you know, perhaps wouldn't be able to consider it. True. Like I said, I just like to see some adjustability in that windscreen in the future. Not a big deal. Overall, wind protection is good. Your legs are protected nicely. You know, that's something that uh, I didn't even really think about until I was riding along for a couple hours and, you know, started bowing my leg, legs out just to see how much wind protection I actually had on that end. Um, if you ride naked bikes, especially if you're in the freeway speeds, some bikes offer a little bit more protection than others. And sometimes you'll actually kind of, you know, get some drag just, just on the rider. And that can, that can become taxing. And that's not the case here because, well, we have a fairing. So I guess the engine is the inline four that's derived from the original K5, the slightly longer stroke version of the, of the Jigsaw. How, do, how does that feel? Yes. So... To be absolutely clear, it is not the current generation GSX-R 1000R. It's derived from the older generation K5 GSX-R 1000. Now, there are numerous changes here, internal changes for uh, Euro 5 compliance, efficiency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as you mentioned before, it is derived from that generation of motorcycles. So at this point, 
it's on the cusp of being old enough to vote. And I think it can actually join the military if it wanted to. Weirdly, can't drink yet. <laughs> yes, true. Kind of kind of odd, but uh, okay. Anyway, um, so yeah, you know, you get that classic inline four feeling, but it is really tuned to be a torquier experience, right? When you ride some of these really long geared, old school inline four superbikes, their power tends to be exclusively on the top end. This isn't really the case. It makes more power lower. You can rev it out to the heavens if you want, but really things tend to get into their stride at about six grand. You know, it picks up, it has some, some good movement on that bottom ends, but by about the mid range, that's when it really starts waking up. And then when you really, really crack the whip, you get some of that old school inline four, you know, screamer uh, aggression. And that still translates today. It's, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, consumers may be critical of the fact that this engine is an older mill. However, it still has relevance in, in many applications. I mean, we're talking about a motor that produces something around 150 horsepower, 78 foot-pounds of torque. I mean, for a sport touring application, you can't really ask for more because, well, you're never going to use it. And the important thing here is in a variety of situations, whether you're commuting, sport riding, or simply just doing those highway slogs, you have the gearing and power to do all of those. That said, it still has that, that mean streak of the original Gixxer engine kind of laying in that, in that upper RPM band. Okay. I guess moving on into some of the other sections of this bike, I, we probably should bring up the electronics because it is a, a cut above the naked bike in that regard. If we think back to the GSX S1000, the standard naked bike from Suzuki, kind of one of the big uh, complaints we had about it was that LCD uh, display. It's pretty difficult to read in direct sunlight. And I would say just fairly difficult to read in general. I mean, LCD screens are a bit dated at this point. However, with the GT and GT Plus, we have something that is far more attractive, far more intuitive, and far more easy to read when just doing your daily duties. So it's a pretty sizable full color TFT display. Uh, the layout is, well, fairly intuitive. You have a, you know, fat kind of a tachometer on your left-hand side with a fuel gauge, and that takes up a good portion of the real estate. And then on the right-hand side, you have your various traction control uh, ride mode settings, and also uh, you can turn off your your quick shifter on and off on the fly. Um, it's kind of interesting because I don't think anyone would ever want to do that, namely because the quick shifter that we have here is, and this is going to sound a little strange, I would say it's probably the standout feature in terms of the electronics. You know, on the GSX S1000, the Hayabusa, and th these motorcycles as well, the GT and the GT Plus, Suzuki has done a and I'm, this is no understatement, an incredible job with its quick shifter. It is up to snuff with some of the European competitors in that regard, which when you look at the rest of the electronics package, you may be a little surprised when I mention that. We're still dealing with you know analog-based uh, electronic systems. 
So there is ABS, but it's not corner uh, cornering ABS, and there is TC. However, it's not lean angle detecting. Just uses preset limits and wheel speed sensors to, you know, detect what's going on. Fairly simplistic electronic safety package in that regard. However, it gets the job done. And, you know, riding around in dry conditions, I don't think I ever really troubled the TC in any capacity other than the couple times that I lifted the front end, you know, over, you know, like a riser or something like that. Um, you know, for street riding, sure. do you want an IMU? Will it add nuance? Yes, to both of those questions. However, that is going to raise the price, as we noted earlier. Um, and that is one of the differences between this and the Kawasaki. The Kawasaki uses IMU-based electronics. Um, and then when you talk about the TC, really, you know, kind of after level four, uh, I would say things are a little bit homogenous. You know, the TC doesn't interact in any way or interact prematurely with aggressive riding. And again, we're riding in the dry. There's plenty of grip. And the only time I... I, you know, got any sort of barking up from the TC is again, when I sort of pressed it over something or hit a sandy patch, which I kind of expected anyway. So it, it was doing its thing. Now the riding modes, uh, you have A, B, and C. You can change them on the fly. And actually you can change the TC on the fly as well. Um, you know, this is one of those things that I do have to be a little bit careful when I'm describing. Um, a mode is your most aggressive mode. And the way it ramps up on the initial hit of power is quite aggressive. Now, a lot of the time when we talk about ride-by-wire throttles, the criticisms will be that it's snatchy. And that's not the case here. It is not snatchy. In fact, the ride-by-wire throttle is quite good in that regard. It's very smooth. Everything is, is calibrated nicely. But the A throttle mapping specifically is quite aggressive off that initial pickup. So the way it ramps up, it sort of digs in a little bit faster, well, not a little bit faster, a lot faster than I would like for street riding. Um, it's something that you can try to recalibrate to, but you have the B mode and the B mode is essentially perfect for this motorcycle. So when I'm thinking sport touring, when I'm thinking commuting, you know, sport riding, that mode is awesome. I would say that A mode is just simply uh, too energetic, especially off the bottom. As you kind of open up into that 10, 15, 20% uh, throttle opening, the personality kind of evens out. And that's where I'd say A and B kind of uh, start to coalesce. But it's that initial stage of the throttle opening that's a little troublesome for me on A. Whereas B is perfect. So Outside of that, you know, if you need to go into C mode, which really chills things out, that would be your de facto rain mode. But that, that's kind of about it. So A mode is really very aggressive. Yes. So in other words, if you're riding a really fast road, fast but twisty road, and something like the 33 or, you know, uh, Angeles Crest Highway comes to, comes to mind, would you conceivably use A mode for that? I mean, there's really no first or second gear corners in any of that stuff. No. Um, it's all third, fourth, fifth gear. 
Um, and it sounds to me like a mode would be pretty well suited for, for that kind of riding if you're getting really aggressive. Yeah, big throttle openings, you're a-okay uh, with with a mode actually. And you know, if you're trying to do some hooligan stuff too, it's it works out nicely for that. You know, pop up the front ends. Sure. Okay. All right. So so it it sounds like a is for really aggressive riding, but typically the the optimum mode is really is B mode for for most normal kinds of kinds of riding where you've got full power, you've got some aggression if you need it, but it's it's really very smooth and and very rideable. Yes. Okay. All right. Good stuff. Then kind of going into some of the other things, I guess we didn't talk about the brakes. You know, it's it is the same braking package that we've. We've seen on a number of Suzuki's over the years, you know, you still have uh, 310 millimeter floating discs, the Brembo monoblock four piston calipers, you know, they're on the GSXS 1000, number of other bikes. Um, and in the rear, you have that 240 disc with a Nissan single caliper. Braking feel, um, I would say the ABS is probably, it's, it doesn't interact as in it's not, in my case, it's not interjecting. And I'm not getting ABS uh, prematurely, but I would say that the feel is a little bit flat as you dig in to the lever. There's power, the bike stops handily. That's not an issue. It just tends to be uh, not as nuanced as, as other brake systems on the market. And you know, you have to think about what this bike is trying to do. The brake feel is not super aggressive like you'd want on a sport bike, and it's not as sort of sedate as a touring motorcycle. So it is in between. I would say with what Suzuki is trying to do, I understand, you know, the, the feel and positioning because it's trying to appeal to a broad spectrum of riders. However, as you dig into that lever and you kind of anticipate more and more feedback and feel, it does tend to get a little bit kind of flat on that end but don't mistake that for a lack of power or the ability to stop it's absolutely capable in those regards no matter what this is just more of a personal preference and observation rear brake totally happy with that no worries all right so overall it sounds like the the, the bike it, there isn't a huge difference between this and the gt plus with the bags so it really is just going to come down to individual pre preference as to whether you really want to save the money or or perhaps if you uh, just buy the GT Plus with the bags anyway and, and don't use them mostly. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the main difference is that you get the little runners that kind of clean up the, the subframe on the, the standard GT. And I think that's a, a cool little feature. You know, there's LED headlights, there's cruise control, you know, there's a lot of things that sport touring customers are going to not only want, but demand and rightfully so. And, you know, it's a, it's a comfortable motorcycle. If you're a more sporting rider and maybe you want some more wind protection than what the GSX S1000 could ever offer, then the base model is kind of your, your, your weapon of choice. In other words, if you want a sport bike, but you don't want the commitment of a super sport bike. So in other words, if, if a, a GSX R1000R is just too much for you and too, too overly committed, but you really want a, a good quality sport bike, then this sounds like, like a good compromise on that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Good stuff. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your insight as always. Yeah, of course. 
There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. This second segment welcomes artist Jack Armstrong to the show. His story is as crazy as it gets, and his zany stories would defy belief if they weren't actually true. Jack made friends with Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat in the New York art and music scene back in the day. His work has sold for literally tens of millions of dollars. Yet, Jack is also a hardcore motorcycle guy, and part of his journey inspired him to paint the Harley V-Rod, the so-named cosmic starship, worth over $50 million. A motorcycle as an art canvas, that's an interesting idea. While Armstrong's art may take you out of your comfort zone, the energy of his work is apparent. They say the more you look at it, the more you become aware of the power behind the strokes and in the laying down of the paint. The cosmic starship will have a different meaning to everyone. If it speaks to you, has made you think, or spurred you on to talk about it, then the artist has tapped into your subconscious successfully. So, whether you're into art or not, whether you're into the Harley V-Rod or not, Jack's astonishing energy comes across in this chat. I found him to be a fascinating and really likeable guy. So sit back and have some fun with this one. Arthur, there's, 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 there's so many people in the world that have created so many amazing things. And we're so lucky to be able to connect with people that appreciate what we do. But man, there's some of the greatest artists in the world nobody's ever heard of. You know, they lived and died and they find out their careers, you know, deck. Well, Van Gogh was one. Nobody in his, in his lifetime, he sold one painting and it, it, took, it took like 50 years before anybody was really even seriously talking about this guy as an artist. None of the artists of his day even wanted to be in the same room with him, much less do an exhibition with him. So, you know, art, art is so subjective, but I think the people started taking motorcycle art as, as art seriously when the Guggenheim did a retrospective on called The Art of the Motorcycle. Yeah. And then it went to, went to Vegas. I saw it in Vegas and it was a good, it was a good definition, but you know, you didn't see these, some of these like John Britton and all these guys that most people never heard of that made these amazing machines that are, that are selling now for like John Britton's gone, but I mean, they're selling for a million bucks and, uh, and up a pop, you know? Yeah. And people told me when I first did the Cosmic Starship Harley at Bartels in, in Los Angeles, Lorenzo Lamas, he came in and he asked me, he said, 
check and I drive it down the red carpet. I said, I said, man, you're the you're the motorcycle king. I mean, Marlon Brando's too old to get on it, so you're the next you're the next choice, sir. You know, and Steve McQueen, who I who I who I knew was is no longer with us. So so yeah, it was cool to have the star renegade drive the other thing and all the world press shoot him and. Overnight, people were talking about the bike because, you know, nobody had ever seen anything like it come down from a, a hundred feet in the air. Joe Branham, who flew every rock star in the world, the Rolling Stones and Michael Jackson, he made this hundred foot thing and people stopped traffic for like six miles on Lincoln Boulevard. And it was like, you know, it was amazing. At some point, it must have popped into your head. Hey, I'm a motorcycle guy. It all started with Andy Warhol and everything, everything reversed. I, I met Steve McQueen in, in, a, in a, a, a restaurant called Musso Franks is really, really well known. The oldest restaurant in the Hollywood show. Every movie star in the world ate and drank there and still do. So I'm at the bar, I, you know, I come in, I'm an I'm, I'm a air traffic controller from the Air Force and, and I had two years left to go and 77, I come to the bar and there's the biggest movie star in the world. There's Steve McQueen at the bar and I, I sit, you know, two seats over, we start to talk and oh, you're in the Air Force, you're to control. Come over, I'm gonna buy you a drink. So I, you know, an hour and a half, with, with Steve McQueen was like too much. And we talked about cars and motorcycles because he had all those great scenes, but at Bud Eakins, the, the stud driver for him that jumped all the fences in the, the great escape. I mean, these guys live for motorcycles and, and McQueen lived to, to ride off off road, even in Malibu when he was rich and famous. So yeah. talking with these guys, and he said, you know, kid, go to, go to New York. You know, you got to meet Andy Warhol. And I said, sure. You know, he said, listen, if you, if you could hang out with me at Musa French, you can hang out with Andy in New York. So later I, I ended up being a pool waiter after the Air Force uh, at the Breakers Hotel, which was a famous place. And I get to meet Priscilla Presley and Farrah Fawcett and all these American stars would come. And I was the only one that could get to talk to them because I was the one serving the drink and setting up their chair. You know, and that night I was, I was working for Burt Reynolds at his dinner theater because the director met me there and said, kid, you got to come and run a private box. I said, but I'm not a waiter. He said, well, you're serving drinks here, kid. So I, I <laughs> I come to Jupiter, Florida, which is 30 miles away from Palm Beach, and, and Burt Reynolds had this amazing private box, and every movie star in the world came in, and yeah, I got to meet for, like, yeah, I got to meet everybody, and I used to drive the Smokey and the Bandit car, which was the, was the car that we would pick up the stars at the airports. I'd pick them up and drop them off, and, you know, like I said, it, this was beautiful. I rode Sarah Foster around the parking lot on my, my I had a thousand Kawasaki that I bought in high school a big blue badass one. And so I would drive and Sarah around and Sally Field around. It was just cool on a bike, you know, for instance, Presley in Palm Beach. And I took that thing to New York with me. So to answer your question about art and motorcycles, it all comes back to Andy. So I, Burt Reynolds said, go to New York kid. And Steve McQueen said, go to New York. So I went to New York. Would you believe it, Arthur? Three days later, I'm going through Bloomingdale's and there's Andy Warhol. And I didn't know it at the time, but it was Ralph Lauren and Esty Lauder, all these people talking. And Esty Lauder started, she goes, you're the handsomest man in New York, she tells me. I was pretty good looking when I was a kid, but I didn't think I was, you know, working for movie stars, you don't think you're the handsomest. So anyway, <laughs> she said, you're going you're gonna to do an ad. You're going to do an ad. Don't run away, young man. And so her and her husband, Joe Lauder, which she named a cologne called JHL, which was for Joe H. Lauder. So it was for Aramis. So later I ended up doing a billboard <laughs> without, a, without a motorcycle on the billboard, but I, I tried to get her to put my bike in it. But anyway, I did a billboard in Times Square around the time that they were doing all the Calvin Klein underwear ads with, with, with Kate Moss and with, 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 Mar with uh, Mark Wahlberg and all those people. So I was the same milieu as, as this. So Andy's right there. And I, I waited until after they all finished talking. And 
Warhol goes, you know, young man, Estee Lauder likes you. You better do her. You better do her advertisement. And he said, by the way, he said, uh, what are you doing like, like uh, Friday night? And I said, well, I, I, I don't know, Andy. I've been uh, in, only in New York three days. He said, well, come to Studio 54 and, and I'll put you on the guest list and you'll meet all my friends. I said, okay. So I said, where's it at? He said, kid, just ask any cab driver. It's on 54th Street. <laughs> so, and I said, well, what time, what do I, time do I come? He said, don't come before midnight and nothing starts before midnight. So I, I came about 1230 and the line was like 5,000 people in the parking lot. And I happened to be on those. They said, they said, what do you want? I said, I'm on the guest list. I said, and sure you are, you know, they say, and then the bouncers are so tough, you know? <laughs> and I said, I said, who's your, who's your, your reference? I said, well, I'm a guest of Andy Warhol. Oh, they said, let's see. Voila, I was on the guest list and in I went. The rest is like my, my life story. There was Michael Jackson and Jacqueline Onassis. And I got to meet a, a really, really cool old lady named Doris Duke, who was, the, the, her father was started Duke Power and Duke University and Duke Tobacco. And she was the richest woman in the world at the time. Wow. A couple of years later, I ride my motorcycle over to her, <laughs> to her house and she loved me. And she said, I showed her pictures of all my art. The next day, I, she said, come back with your car. You have a car? I said, yeah, bring me a painting. So I bring a painting to her in my car, not on my motorcycle. And she buys a painting in a, in a black bag for a million dollars in 1984, just because I meet Annie Warhol, who at the time was selling $50,000 portraits of all the, all the famous people. So without Andy Warhol, nothing would have happened probably for my, in my life. But all the people that told me, go meet Andy, go meet Andy. Right. So yeah, I started riding Andy around New York City on my back of my motorcycle. And I think it's the only motorcycle he ever rode on in his life. And he was so scared. But he was riding that two-wheel bicycle. And, you know, he'd bring it to Bloomingdale's. He lived a few blocks away. And he'd either walk through or bring his bicycle. And he'd carry his magazine, not like Ultimate Motorcycle magazine, but he'd carry his magazine, which was Interview magazine with all the stars on it. And he'd give it to all the people in Bloomingdale's and everybody loved him there. He was like, his, that was like his, his salon, you know, just walking through Bloomingdale's, handing his magazine to everybody at the counters, you know? And it was a, it was a, a fascinating time. So yeah, I'd ride, him, I'd ride him around, I'd drop him at the Mud Club or I'd drop him at CBGB's and, at CBGB's, I got friendly with the Ramones and with, with Joe Strummer from The Clash. He would come to my house and play piano and sing. And it was really crazy. And Freddie and Mercury from Queen became a buddy. And I rode David Bowie on that motorcycle. And my sister still has the bike. What motorcycle was that? That wasn't still a blue cab with somebody. That was 1980,000 Sportster Harley Davidson, all black and chrome. <laughs> Just shiny, shiny black and chrome. But yeah, from... I felt like when I was in the Air Force on that, that thousand Kawasaki, and I started off riding like YZ, you know, 250 Yamahas back in high school. I was doing hill climbs. I was doing like little, little motocross races in Nebraska. And I didn't win any, but I was, I was, I was right in the, in the middle of it all. You know, it was fun. Then I went to the Kawasaki and I was a, being in the control tower. My last gig was, was in Wichita, Kansas of all places where my grandmother still was, was living and she was born and raised there. So when President Carter came in on Air Force One in 78, he landed at McConnell for a visit. I got to control him. And then I, I felt like Tom Cruise. I ran down and said that I landed and went to the ground controller. And while they were still taxing the plane over where he was going to meet the, all the, the people on the Air Force Base, 
I jumped on the on the thousand cow and raced right over to the to the red carpet. Wasn't even a red carpet. It was, it was just a, a, a little roped off section where he came off the plane and everybody shook hands with the whole front line. And the photographer snapped my picture, shaking hands with with uh, President Carter. And I landed the plane and got to shake his hand in my uniform. And my grandmother saw that on the front page of the Wichita Eagle Beacon. And which and that was for her. That was every friend in the world. She was. And that's my grandson. And here he is with the president. And it's like what a what a magical ex experience, you know. Your uncle is actually Neil Armstrong, isn't he? No, everybody says that, but it's not true. Uh, my, my father's second cousin, but somebody, I was on a, I was on a TV show once called Beverly Hills Pawn Stars. And this, this art dealer in Dina Yossi, uh, ex-Israeli military commander, I think he was a colonel in the Israeli army. And he's got this really, really high clientele uh, called, what is it, what's it called? Uh, Dina something, Dina, Dina art or, or collectibles. Anyway. He said, please bring the motorcycle. He heard all about the motorcycle and he read all about it. And he saw the pictures. It was even on TV in India. India TV came all the way to Bartels and shot the whole thing for India, you know, it was on all the television in, in New Delhi. So everybody loved it. Getty, Getty images came and all the movie stars came. It was cool. I got to ask you, Jack, I got to, what happened to the sportster? My, my sister still has it. I gave it to my sister. She was her, all my nephews grew up with, but Neil Armstrong was my father's second cousin. And then I'm on the show with, with Yossi Dina. <laughs> he, tells me, he tells his audience, and this is what, what can I say? And we're at the house of Neil Armstrong's nephew. So now everybody in the world writes, I'm Neil Armstrong's nephew. And yeah, that would be a great honor, but I'm not. I'm, I'm you know, I met him a couple of times and I, I used to have, have lunch with Spago with, with Buzz Aldrin, who was the second guy on the moon. But uh, no, no, Neil's, Neil's a relative, but he's not my, I'm not, he's not my uncle. <laughs> but he is a cousin. He is a cousin. Yeah. Well, but, uh, sort of my, fa my father's cousin, so I, whatever it is. But anyway, right, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm very proud of that. He's a, he was a really, really nice guy. Oh, that's, that's awesome. But the Sportster, I mean, aren't you tempted to, to paint that? What a canvas that would be. Never, never, because I always said I would only do one motorcycle. That's how it started. I, Andy got off the bike and he said, why do you love motorcycles so much? I said, Andy, one day I'm going to paint a million dollar motorcycle. No, he said, he said and then what? And I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do a, a Harley Davidson. I'm going to charge a million dollars for it. He said, kid, kid, after I'm gone, you're going to be the last wizard of art. Because that, that just, it's, you know, he was the, the biggest promoter I've ever met in my life. You know, so soft-spoken and so quiet, but promoting, promoting, he lived, he lived his art as his life. Uh, and that whole thing about you'll be famous for 15 seconds is, is kind of his life. He, he thought that every day was your next 15 seconds. So he tried to get his 15 seconds in every day as long as he was alive. He never, he never wanted his 15 seconds to be over. So it was amazing. You know, two weeks before he died, or like a week before he died, he was doing a fashion show with, with Miles Davis, the great trumpet player. And he said, but Miles had a better jacket. I mean, they made this gold lame jacket with musical notes and no, nobody put, a, they gave me an old silver hand-me-down, he said, and he, nobody painted a little silver paint brushes on my jacket. So that was Andy, it's, it's like a child, you know, a childlike, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing, amazing. I mean, the, the energy that you just, that comes from you, I mean, you project it. Our, our mutual, you know, good friend told me, he said, he said, when, when I go into a room with one of Jack's paintings, he said, the energy that comes off it is astonishing. What, what's the kind of the process that you go through with that? 
I had, a, when I was a kid, little kid, and this is why I say there's art and life and even our friendships and our connections. So it's more magic than it is anything else. I still don't think we, we plan our life. I think our life plans us. I think for me, the universe and the stars guide us. I think, what did it, I read something many years ago where we're 97 and a half percent stardust. The same molecules that are in the humans are in the stars. Now, that can't be a coincidence that humans are stardust. So, and then you have all the, the great romantics writing all through history about that we come from the stars and we shine like stars and it's true. And if we just open, see, we're all looking for it from outside, but it's really inside. The universe is inside of us. So if we connect with ourselves and we find out who we are, and if you can channel it, I was a little kid. My father took me to the Smithsonian in, down in DC and I, we go to the National Gem Collection and there's, he wanted me to see the greatest blue diamond that Louis the, Louis the, the 16th had and all these people that Marie Antoinette wore and it called the Hope Diamond. And it's, it's a beautiful stone, but right next to it when this case was a, was a big, big black stone. It was the black star of Queensland Sapphire, 35 diamonds around it on mounted on white gold. And the light that shone out of it, they show a light down from the front of it. So like if you're in the sun or, or if you're even in the moonlight, the light from the sun or the moon makes the star come out of the stone. And in ancient times, people thought that was great magic and mystical. And they had all kinds of, of things that they thought about that. So in modern times, people kind of forgot about it. But I saw it in the early 60s. It was from 61 to 69 in the National Gem Collection. I put my hand against the glass and I felt some, some magical force connected me and you know, the goddess came and talked to me and all these colors exploded. And, you know, 35 years later, I see this in, in, in Beverly Hills. I'm invited by an old movie star. She brings me in and he's got to meet this, this guy. And she wanted me to give money to his foundation. But there in this vitrine of the wall was the same star. The star, I said, I'm going to buy it. He said, it's not for sale. And two weeks later, I owned it. <laughs> so I loaned it to the Royal Ontario Museum because it hadn't been seen since 69. So 2007 a really rich guy in Canada named Michael Lee Chin donated all this money to the Royal Ontario Museum, the biggest museum in Canada. And they built this crazy crystal and the William Thorsell, the, the, the director of the museum said, he said, I want something spectacular to open the crystal. What better than the black star of Queensland Sapphire and this beautiful wow. star coming out. So I loaned it in 2007 for the opening ceremonies that all the VIPs came from all over the world. And everybody raved about the star and it had the, it had the biggest, biggest presence in, in the museum and over, over three and a half million people came and saw it. And people that didn't even like uh, sapphires or, or jewels, they said, oh, this is, this is phenomenal because the energy that comes out of it. Well, that, I used to sleep with it on my pillow. I used to drive with it in my pocket when I drove my cars or my bikes. <laughs> and finally, finally to see it in the museum shining and other people got it. And so that's kind of how I channeled my painting to answer your question. Um, kind of that same essence we get from the stars or the star of Queensland or that we get inside of us from, from the, our connection with the universe. It comes in my paintings. I don't really plan the paintings. It's kind of like I don't plan my conversations. I just come and talk or I come and paint. Right. And it, I think it speaks for itself. It, you, you either feel it or you don't. You either get it or you don't, you know? Yeah, has your entire motorcycle career, other than the Kawasaki, been just Harleys, or or are there other motorcycles you've been to? Only Harley. I've ridden. I've ridden them all. I've ridden ridden Ducatis. I've ridden BMWs. I like them all. And I I've ridden Goldwings. <laughs> I've ridden the big hogs with all the all the bags on them. 
And I felt kind of like an old bag, even when I was young. I liked the sports here because it made you feel young and it was so it was so powerful right. that you had so much more power than the, than the little dirt bikes I was racing. They, they were instant power, but then for a big bike, the Harley was like instant power, like the Sportster. They got really good rides because they put all the, had all the, the, the rubber mounted bolts and you didn't feel all that shake and all that pounce. So for me, from 2000 on, seven on, that was like the 50th anniversary of the, of the Sportster that started the year I was born. I was born in 57. That's the year that the Sportster was, was founded. So I love Harley Davidson. And I, and I saw when I was skiing in Gestad, and I saw one parked by the one of the fancy hotels there. So like a week later, I went in to buy one. I said, I have to have one of these bikes. And I went to uh, in Grand, which was near Geneva, between Geneva and Lausanne. I go in and I'm talking to this guy for like, I don't know, half an hour while we're waiting for the, the parts people and the and the sales people to, to open. I like we're out in front of the stores and they open at eight o'clock. And <laughs> me and this big tall guy. And we, <laughs> It was Schumacher, it was Mike, Michael Schumacher, the, the seven-time Ferrari racing champion. I said, I'm gonna, he said, I got like 15 of these bikes, you know? I said, well, give me one, Mike. <laughs> Michael. He said, I, I'm gonna get you a good deal. And he takes me in and, you know, they gave me a really, they gave me his price. So it was really cool. And we became pals and I, we rode, we rode V-Rods together. So yeah, I bought the V-Rod. Right. And then I said, oh, I got to paint one. So in two, that was in 2002. In Gestad, Switzerland, that I saw at my first one, and of course, then I read about Eric Buell developing it with Porsche engineering, and I thought, oh, this is something. And you see, everybody's got a, a fan club because even all the old, a lot of the Harley guys said, oh, the old timers said, this is this is a liquid cool. We don't want one of those. That's not that's that's not the right way to go. That's like somebody saying today, you, you can't have the iPhone, even though you're connected to the whole world. You throw it away because we shouldn't have phones. Well, you know, <laughs> everybody has their own idea, but. It, it, it was it was it was something and that was the only choice for the for the for the bike to come down from out from outer space was because it had to be a cosmic starship it had to look like the v-rod only radical with this cosmic x style of painting that i do and anyway i i'm, I'm very proud of it and i'll never paint another one to answer your question because i said i'll only paint one and what will that be worth someday i don't know a warhol what if Warhol would have painted a bike? He didn't, but he painted some in his last supper uh, show that he did for right when he was feeling bad, he did his last exhibition in, in Rome and later the Vatican has shown it all and it's been, been really talked about. But at the time his, his art wasn't really popular until he passed again. There was Jean-Michel Basquiat who he was kind of mentoring and they were both really, really good friends, but you know, Basquiat surpassed it because everybody likes the younger. He was like the young, the, the new young Warhol and, and Andy was a little jealous and they had a little falling out and then they both passed away in 87 and 88. But his motorcycle lives on in that, I think it was a, a Honda CB350 or something, but it was in the, the Vatican series he did. And I always think that was because Andy was riding around on my Harley and he wanted something a little sweeter for the Vatican instead of something badass like the Harley. So he, he made it. A, he made the he made the Vatican uh, series he did with the Honda instead of the Harley. Without a doubt, you on the bike inspired him to that. He, he wasn't a rider, but having been ridden around, he got the inspiration. Yeah, he loved that. After the first time, he was scared, and the second time, he said, "Can we do it again?" <laughs> <laughs> It was cool. So yeah, when Andy World asked an up-and-coming young artist to go for a ride on a bike, you got to do it. 
I can, like I said, I'm, I'm dancing in, in, the, in the Studio 54 with Liza Minnelli and Michael Jackson and, and, we, and Jackie O didn't come down and dance. We went up and talked to her in the balcony and she said, oh, little boy, she said, can I sit on your lap? <laughs> I said, sure. So it was like, these times don't, you can't experience this anymore because everybody's got bodyguards. This couldn't happen today because all the bodyguards and all the, you know, forget it. And and insurance purposes, you know, they, they would even, the business manager, if there's a famous artist today, you, if he didn't ride a bike, you couldn't, you couldn't even put one on a bike, you know? Sure. Damien Hurst on a motorcycle? No, forget it. Sure. He, he'd, he'd rather sit in his, in his studio and pay, and pay artists minimum, minimum wage to create the art that he then signs. And instead of instead of being out on a, doing something wild like like uh, and reels, so you know, right? Art art is different. Motorcycles are different. But I was talking to my friend. I was talking to my friend in England, Paul Jason, who's a, a motorcycle enthusiast. And Paul said he likes the old Ducatis. And I said, but but Paul, in those in those days, people thought they were ugly, and now they're paying again like hundreds of thousands for these old sixties and seventies Ducatis. Because people love that side. They were radically different. They're un unusual, you know? I, I, got, I got to say, I'm not sure I could ever describe a Ducati as ugly, but, you know, but I, I know where he's coming. I know where you're coming from. No, but people that bought the, people that bought the Hondas, you know, yeah. and even some of the shiny Harleys back in the 60s, you look at the shape of the tanks, you know, and the bodywork, it wasn't what you expected. If, if you want the shiny, happy American look, you know, or the Japanese look. So they were very, and the BMWs were very different. I, I love the old BMWs and I love the old, and I love the old Ducatis. That was the, the ones that I thought were really artistically designed. Somebody different was, it's like trying to compare the 60s cars to the, to the today's cars. You, it's impossible. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, all those, all those, when they, when they developed those Hemi engines and they, and these amazing shapes, I mean, the, from the Cudas to the, to the Cadillacs, I mean, you can take the Cadillacs today; they look they look like museum pieces. But then they, you 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 take them to the Latino community, and they put they make them low riders, and you go like, "Wow, what is this?" And all the crazy paint. It's like it just shows <laughs> you that there's art in every culture, and everybody has art in them. You can you can just let it go and create something magical, or you can stifle it and never let your art show. So I'd say, with my art, if you see what I do everybody can do something even more amazing in this world. So like, let it go, just let it out. Yeah, that's awesome. Mick Jagger is a big fan of your work, isn't he? He owns a couple of pieces, I think. He, they did They did back in the, in the day, but then I, I bought all my work back from, from everybody. Paul McCartney had one and, and Doris Duke had one, Elizabeth Taylor had two, Michael Jackson had three. Farrah Fawcett had paintings. Everybody had them. Wow. Jackie O gave me two back, but I asked him to give them back to me or let me buy them, and everybody gave them back to me. And I burned them all in 94. And people say, why are you insane? I said, well, I didn't like what I did. I turned down the biggest dealer in the world, which was Leo Castelli of Castelli Galleries, and he made everybody famous from Lichtenstein to Warhol. So he, he had a solo show for me in 84 and I, and I didn't do it. I said, right two weeks before the show, I said, no, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> not going to do this because my art's not good enough. And he said, but kid, he said, well, this is why I know that the art, the art world is an art cartel because he was as serious as you can be, as famous as you can be, as good as you can be for a dealer. Believe me, his assistant, Gagosian, to this day, <laughs> for me, is nothing because he took, his, he took, Leo's, uh, he took Leo's entire 
entire list of collectors that, you know, he became the new Gagosi, I mean, the, the new Castelli, but no feeling at all for art. Castelli really loved art. And he said, why, why Jack, why don't you want to have the, the opening? You're going to be rich and famous. And I said, well, I like the rich part, but I said, I want to be famous for something that, that means something, not for a bunch of shite. Interesting. They didn't, he didn't talk to me for a year. Andy didn't talk to me for three months because Andy made the connection for me there. But at the end, it was correct. It reminds me of the David Chappelle thing, the comedian who, who left the David Chappelle show. They offered him $50 million at Comedy Central. And he said, no. And everybody said, show business said, wow, how can you, how can you turn down 50 million? And well, 12 years, he struggled and struggled and did the shows and did the shows. And I know exactly what he, what he felt like. That was me after I didn't do the, the Castelli show. And guess what? Netflix came back just a, a couple of years ago and gave them $60 million to do all these Netflix specials. So you see, when you stick to your guns, and I love Chappelle for, for another reason. He gave me an art quote. I can't believe I got an art quote from a comedian, but it's one of the greatest quotes in the world. He, he said he went to Duke Ellington High School in D.C., and he said, man, I was so happy to get in that school because all around it was the crack epidemic and all the people, gangsters and people robbing you. And he said, you're just getting the school doors and hear all this art and music in the hallways and all this creativity and to allow yourself to be free like we're talking universally. And Chappelle said, that changed my life. Just, I didn't be free. And he said, Duke Ellington, the band leader that the high school was named after said, art is dangerous. And he said, when it ceases to be dangerous, we don't want it anymore. And that's so powerful. And it's so true. So the great ones like Michael, like Michael Jackson or Leonardo da Vinci or, or Michelangelo or the guy that designed the Ducati or when you do something radically and dangerous, either people love it or hate it, but it's freaking beautiful. At least it gets a reaction. I spent my 12 years or, or 20, 20 years in the wilderness like Chappelle did his 12 years in the wilderness or, or like Jesus did his 40 years in the wilderness or whatever. Moses in the wilderness, but you know, at the end of the day, it's everything becomes a religion. We say people, even even the atheists, they they all love the, whether they love horse racing or the or or driving a fast car or a speedboat or a really really cool motorcycle. Everybody has a religion. That I say to people, well, your religion is what you love and what you do all the time. That's your religion. It's nature and it's art and it's magic. You know? Yeah, that's so true. That's a very that's a very interesting take. I love it. Yeah, it's so true. It just, it becomes part of you. You know, they say they're in your blood. I don't think they're in your blood. They're in your very being. I mean, they're in your DNA. Uh, and for me, it's motorcycles. And for you, you've clearly found an outlet to really project that onto these different canvases of yours. It's really an incredible achievement, what you've done. Did you have any kind of real influences or, I mean, your style of art? I, I mean, I, I, the, thing about, the thing about burning all your art did that radically change what you did or? or? Oh yeah, I didn't, pay, I didn't paint from 90, when I burned the art in 94 in New York and I left New York City, the, the day after I burned the art, I left. I've been there for 14 years from 79 to 8 to 94. So after almost 15 years in New York and being friends with everybody, like I said, from, from Freddie Mercury and David Bowie to Luciano Pavarotti was a friend and, and you know, for all these people that collected my art, like I said, Bowie collected my art and Freddie did and so did Luciano. So to meet all these people was, was 
was amazing. But then to become their friend and then to have them ride on my motors, like Pavarotti's the only one that didn't get on the bike. He was too big. But, <laughs> <laughs> but everybody else, Freddie Mercury, man, I took him all over the all over downtown New York, man. I and mean, we were in the Lower East Side and, and, and all over Greenwich Village. And he loved it. He said, I feel free. There's no paparazzi. There's, there's no bodyguards. There's no nothing. He loved it. He just, he was a really, really nice guy. Wow. I think he was my favorite. When, when I was over in Switzerland, the only time I cried in years was that I, I, I drove my, my, I drove that Harley Vera that I bought in Switzerland and I drove it over to Montreux. And I'm, my first time in Montreux, the mountains of France, they're all around you on the other side, you know, you're just, and then over here, you're in Switzerland on this beautiful Lac Le Mans, they call it, but it's the lake, of, the Americans call it the Lake of yeah. Geneva. So you're on this beautiful lake with all these amazing restaurants and flowers. And right at the end of the lake, there's a statue of Freddie with his fist in the air. <laughs> And I said, oh, my God, and I started crying. I had a, a couple of good glasses of wine. And, and I said, Freddie, this is to you. You were the most, you were the coolest guy I ever met. You, him and Michael Jackson, for me, were the greatest entertainers that ever lived for that genre. Oh. Who could touch them? From, from China to, 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 to Thailand, from, from Romania to, to Russia to, to America to England. Michael Jackson, when he would, when the plane would land, you'd, I've never seen, you know, who comes out for a head of state like that? I mean, everybody came for Michael Jackson. The whole world loved him, you know? I don't think there's too many people that would dispute that. I mean, him and Freddie Mercury, I mean, Freddie Mercury, I mean, his energy, just amazing. To, to, be, to, to be friends with those two guys was a miracle. I, I taught them both how to paint abstract. Because they, that's that's how I got to spend time along with me. They, they asked me. I didn't say, say hey, I'm going to give you painting lessons. <laughs> you don't tell Michael Jackson I want to teach you how to do anything. Because <laughs> this guy was the moonwalker, you know. But yeah, yeah, I had a place that above Nielsen's Florist down on the uh, over on West 24th Street in in New York and in Manhattan. And man, I had the whole loft there. And Jean Michel Basque, I used to crash on my couch. And so Michael's painting there one day with me and he, and and Basquiat wakes up just when Michael was leaving and he said who was that he said I had a dream and I said well that was that was Michael Jackson man he said Michael Jackson and Basquiat went right under Michael who had the rolls in front like funny because Warhol had a had a rolls and so did Michael so Michael had a rolls but Michael came in all kinds of cars Cadillac limousines Lincoln limousines came in the rolls but it had the rolls in the driver and there goes Michael. So Boss gets running down the street with his with his just his boxer boxer shorts on in the in the snow <laughs> and waving at Michael. And he came back up and he was so happy. I said, "You can meet him." He said, "I couldn't catch him, but he said he was waving at me." And it made it made Boss get so happy that Michael Jackson's waving at him out of the back of the Rolls Royce. Well, he's running down the street in his boxers trying to catch him. You can't, you can't make this stuff up. You cannot make this stuff up. That's crazy. Anyway. And you met, and you met uh, David Bowie, too, and, and taught him to paint? Oh, Bowie was a really good friend. Yeah, he, and they, they, he painted. Bowie was a painter. Michael was a painter. People, people don't know that. They both painted. And after I got done with them, they painted, they painted a, little, a little crazier. <laughs> they painted a little bit different. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome. All because I, I, all because I go to Bloomingdale's meet Andy Warhol the third day in New York and the rest is, like I said, we don't, who can plan all this, you know? Who can plan it? It's, it definitely comes back to your theory of there's a universe out there that somehow channels through us and, and steers us. But that is, it's a religion, that is the religion. The religion is 
the beautiful accident happens all the time if you channel it and if you believe in it. So that whole thing about Walt Disney, make a wish upon a star, it'll come to you. It, it's very, very true because why would in 1977, I didn't meet Warhol till 79, three years later. So three years before I, when I was talking to McQueen about it and I channeled meeting McQueen. I didn't know he was gonna be at, at Musso Frank's that day, but I channeled him because I, every time I watched Bullet, which was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid, because that was the first big car chase movie in history. Right, absolutely classic. That big Hemi Chrysler, <laughs> was, that Charger was jumping all those hills, the black one, remember? And Jacqueline Bassett was in that movie and it was just yeah. beautiful. So at the end of the day, we I channeled all that, that movie so many times that I said, oh, I'd love to meet McQueen. Like, you know, they want to meet Brad Pitt today or, or, or Travolta back in the day or whatever. And I, you got to meet these people. So you channel it and it happens. But I think you have to go where the action is. Like Andy, one, I told that story to Andy one time and he said, well, kid, if you go to McDonald's, you get McDonald's. If you, if you go to, if, you know, if you go to Delmonico's, you get a steak, you know? So you have to go to, if you want, if you're looking for steak, you have to go to the steakhouse. If you want a hamburger, go to the hamburger place, you know? All right. Right. So you had to you had to go to London or Paris or New York, you, you know? Yeah. That's a, that's amazing. You're a, a real generous guy, a real philanthropist and you and you pledged a lot of money to Ukraine and to the people of Ukraine and that is just a really, you know, a nice thing to do. I I I don't I don't like war. I I, I said if I sell the 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 most expensive seven paintings in the world, which is, is my is my finest collection, I believe, of the cosmic X. There's only a hundred paintings in the world, and I don't like war. And of course, I the only thing I feel bad about is the, is, the, is the families that are broken up and all the children. Because they, even if you you're broken up by war, it's happened all over the world. Even if you're older, you have a chance to escape and to make money. But the children, they have no chance. So for the children, yeah, I would give half of the. I'm going to give half of the, you know 350 million dollars to the. To, to help children relocate and to help feed them and clothe them in houses. So that, that's that's my goal. And I pray that you you pull that off because that's uh, a very worthy. Oh, it's going to happen. We, we're 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 shopping the collection. Every we've we've already had offers, and it's it's being it's it's being very carefully shopped to a couple of the richest families in the world. I want and the motorcycle is different. It has nothing to do with that. The motorcycle. I I have a, a little bit of an illness, so if if I don't if I don't survive. I'd like to I'd like to know that the motorcycle is going to be in a nice collection somewhere where it was hidden it was hidden away for for we came down on the motorcycle on 2010 I came down for all the press and would you believe 2012 it sold it sold for three million three times what I asked for it because we had so many clients that were offering after the Dupont registry article so I think the motorcycle is going to go for a really really big number. And whatever that number is, I, I don't even care. The one who's going to win the bid is going to be the one who's going to agree to publicly display it, whether it's a private collection or public. They have to let the public come in to see it. And they have to let photographers come in and see it because it was 10 years taken apart and stuck in a climate control vault. That's beautiful if, if you're an art preservationist. But for the real world, we want to see the art. We want to ride the Harley. We want to, you know, otherwise, what was the point of it all? So. The family that the family that, that, that bought the Harley, very well-to-do family in, in California, they they came to me and wanted to buy one of my fifty million dollar paintings. So they actually wrote the check, 
And I had the check in my hand. And this is why I go back to the David Chappelle moment with where he turned down the $50 million for, for Comedy Central. And people say, oh, that, that boy's crazy. Why did he do that? Anyway, he was a genius because he says, this is not art anymore. If I don't like what I'm doing, it's not art anymore. There, nobody can control me. So he went back to his source. And I did the same thing. And I burned my art. I didn't do the big dealer show and become famous like all these people you don't even know their names anymore or the ones that use all the, the all the all the minimum wage artists like Jeff Koons and Damian Hurst come to mind because they don't create their own art you go like you know so why are they the most famous artists in the world well that's kind of like I call it the, the art cartel so I took it back to a different level and that's why the people that really really love art original art it's not manufactured or signed by somebody else they want a cosmic X because it's so rare. There's less than a hundred in the world. So what are you gonna do? You gotta come to see Jack Armstrong. So the motorcycle is gonna be the same way. I, I got the $50 million check and I gave it back to the family. And I said, I'll do this for you. You love the painting? And I brought it to their house personally. And I said, I held it up in front of the wife and the, and the, whole, the whole family. And I said, you really like this painting, don't you? She said, it makes me cry. It makes me happy. It makes me want to scream. I said, that's the way I feel about the motorcycle. If I give you this painting and the check, that $50 million check, would you give me back my motorcycle? And she said, I'll do it. Now that I know how you, how bad you want it. I said, that's my, that's my Campbell soup can. That's my freaking Warhol. That's my connection to art because overnight people knew who I was. Even if they didn't know my name, they said, Oh, that's the, that's that crazy artist that painted that, that million dollar Harley Davidson's and it went around the world. So yeah, that's, that's my foundation piece. I wanted it. Forgive me, but that almost makes you more of a motorcycle guy than an art guy. I started out as a motorcycle freak. I became an art freak. I am a magical art freak and that's my religion. But my first religion and my first Pope and my first high priest, my first bishop was the motorcycle, the Yamaha Corporation, the Kawasaki Corporation. <laughs> and then the new Pope became the freaking Harley Davidson Corporation from 1903. A couple of guys that used to make bicycles. That's... They, the, 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 you know, the, the, the Harley and Davidson were making bicycles in a little shed and then they became motorcycle guys. So, you know, in that vein, the last story I'll tell you is an artist named Kelsey Fisher was invited me to a show. I got an email. I get emails from artists all the time, like Andy would do today if there was email in his time. Because all the artists were running after Andy. Everybody wanted to show him their painting. Basquiat was running to show him his painting. I remember they had a lunch one time with David Bowie and Basquiat were out of lunch. And Basquiat, I'll be right back. And they thought he went to the men's room. He ran home to his studio, did a portrait of, him, of, of Warhol and brought it back with the paint still wet and they were getting ready to leave the restaurant. And he, had, he said, Andy, this is you. And that's the imagination and respect that, 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 that we, we all lived in New York. Man, you, New York City second, you had to move. So anyway, that, that's the way I felt with the, with, the, with the motorcycle. And then this kid calls me about this, send me an email, come to my show. I come to this and he's selling them for, I don't know, $300 and $1,000. And I said, for a bicycle. I said, kid, this bicycle should be 25,000 or 30,000. Go give one to Julia Roberts, who lives in Venice. He was painting in Venice. I said, she lives there. Go give her one. You leave it at her door. 
put a note and I said, give her a tour for Christmas. And I said, I'm sure she's going to buy one for, from you for at least 25 grand, you know, cultivate your clientele. Can't, I can't do that. I said, I said, if I paid it, one, it'd be a million dollars. He said, it's impossible. Who's going to pay a million dollars for a bicycle? Well, I said, I said, they paid a million dollars. They paid $3 million for my Harley Davidson. You don't think I can sell a bicycle for three, for a million? He said, I don't think anybody can. I said, let's have it. We had an arm wrestling contest for the bike. <laughs> I won. I, I still work out. And the kid was 25 years old. I took the bicycle and I didn't want to take it away from him. I just wanted to show him what could be done with that bicycle. So I took the bicycle. I painted, repainted half the bicycle on one side. And he, the Fisher bike was the original. And he sold to a lot of, a lot of little, you know, people in LA. He was, you know, really, really well known for in his little group, in his little art circle in Venice. I put it on the world stage. I flew it to Dubai, the bicycle, on the plane with me. I carried, hand carried it on, and <laughs> the airline, uh, all the, all the pilots and all the flight attendants were crazy. They loved it. They were all taking pictures of the bicycle, you know. And people told me, "You they'll, they'll never let you on with the plane with that." I said, "Watch me. I just carry it on. I'm not going to tell them I'm carrying it." <laughs> so I, I carried it on, and they let me. I get to Dubai. We put it in a, in a show called The Big Boys Toys. And they had motorcycles in that show and they had submarines and they had everything. They had the most expensive cars in the world there, right? It's in Dubai and the royal family's coming and all the, all the crown princes from the region are coming. So the bike's in the show and CNN comes to film the, 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 the show and the only person CNN filmed was me. <laughs> <laughs> they said, a $3 million bicycle, are you nuts? Some of the papers that was on the front page of all the Kajil Times and the national news in Dubai, there's the bicycle. So I, I was walking later through some of the hotels, like the, like the, the, where the fish are in the aquarium out on the island. Man, people were running. They said, ah, you're the, art, the artiste with the $3 million bicycle. They're all telling me. So at the end of the day, CNN films it. Everybody loves it. The bicycle sells for $3 million. So Kelsey Fisher called me up. He said, oh my God, how did you do it? I said, kid, you remember when you told me you, that bike, you could only get 3,000, you'd never get 3,000, you were selling them for 300 to 1,000. And I told you, you should be selling from 3,000 to 25,000. I said, you don't believe in yourself. He said, what, what do you mean? I've sold a bunch of them. I said, yeah, but I took the same bicycle and did a half a paint job. And I said, I got 3 million for it. So why don't you try believing in yourself, raise your prices, and paint really what you feel. Don't be afraid to put the paint on it. Anyway. Yeah. That's my bicycle. That's my bicycle story. <laughs> we went from Andy Warhol on his bicycle to Kelsey Fisher's bicycle to the Jack Armstrong. It was called the Cosmic Star Cruiser Art Bike. And it went to Dubai and it sold for $3 million. So now I've sold two two-wheelers for $3 million each. Now the motorcycle has changed hands again for $50 because I gave them their money back for the painting and I took the motorcycle instead. So now let's see what the motorcycle goes for. Arthur Colwell, you're the motorcycle expert. What do you predict it's gonna go for? How can I say anything less than 50 million? I mean, it's it, it's gotta be at least, a, I, I mean, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if it went for double. The world they just sold for 195 million. Basquiat had the record at, at first it was world, for, first it was Warhol's record, 105 for the silver car crash. Then Basquiat's after he passed, uh, not, somebody paid it. paid nineteen thousand for that painting after the auction, and the museums wouldn't even take it. They'd offered it to museums. Nobody wanted a Basquiat. The Basquiat sells 
a $19,000 basket sells for 110 million and then Warhol comes back. Now he's of course gone. And the, 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 blue, the blue sage Maryland, which to me looks more turquoise than blue, but the, the, the turquoise Maryland sold for 195 million. And of course that'll resell for probably 300 million the next time. So it's not going down. We call it the Mona Lisa of motorcycles because, you know, Leonardo, I'm not even that big of a fan of Leonardo. I think he was an interesting character, but, but it, the interesting story for me for Leonardo, because I don't even like the Mona Lisa, but I, I understand he loved the Mona Lisa. So he carried it with him his whole life. Till he died, the Mona Lisa was with Leonardo. So that's why the Mona Lisa is this iconic, precious thing, because it's not whether the public likes it, it Leonardo liked it, he was the artist. So that's why it's in the Louvre, you know? And so for me, it's like, like Leonardo, the Mona Lisa is not a big deal, but for me, that's my Mona Lisa is the, is the cosmic starship. Cause I want, I was carrying that with me till I'm, till I'm ready to go now from this, from this world to the next. But I think it's phenomenal when you can create something you love and then a lot of other people love it too. Cause I get, I get emails and, and calls from all over the world. People go like, even, not even about selling it. People are, wow, how did you come up with this? And it's so radical and it was so different. Well, I said, first of all, the V-Rod was different for its time and radical. And then I had this vision of it coming through intergalactic space and the comics are hitting it and the paint's melting and it's all making, you know, partly uh, English language and partly alien languages on the bike and the extreme colors. And it's, it's something different. That's why I put so much clear coat because I said, oh, it's got to have a, a shine to it after it comes from all this super high melt, like the, the diamonds, you know, are compressed in the earth and all that, all that volcanic fire to make a diamond and all these other precious gems. So the, the starship has to be the same when it comes out. It's got to shine like a diamond. And you've put two sea sponges on, on it that are part of it. What's the inspiration behind those? I took the natural sea sponges because it's coming through intergalactic space. And I'm thinking that the, I'm thinking that the cosmic uh, comets are, are hitting it. And they look, you know, a little rocky. And all, but I'm thinking, what can I do on Earth that's going to look like, a, like an intergalactic, you know, painted comet? And I came up with a natural sea sponge. So I put the sponge on it. And all those coats of paint, and it looks—it looks like it looks like actually, I call it cosmic coral because it looks like coral now. That sort of universal sort of meteorite feel to it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I get it. Absolutely, meteor meteorite or comet. Yeah, absolutely. It it, it throws it right on the, you know. Ah, that's how interesting. Jack, you are an absolute force of nature yourself. I mean, it's clearly you figured out how the universe works and how to channel it into you. I sent you, an, I, I just found an old picture because I, I don't think it's been published, but, but my friend Rick Morrow, who's the only Native American uh, actor that's in the movie Twilight because they, they shot him in a, a sequence where they, he played one of the ancestors, you know, and everybody loved him because he, was, he really, really looks like an, one, of the, one of the majestic, you know, older time traditional Indians. So Rick, Rick does modeling and acting all over the world and especially in that genre for the Native Americans. So, Rick came, he loved, he came, he loved my work. He came to the, uh, to my cosmic ballet down in Orange County. He came to, he came to the, to the Harley show. And it's a really good picture of him with the bike. And, and the bike seems to be, as soon as Rick touched the bike, it's like the bike seemed to even, even get more, more intense and more cosmic. So yeah, we're all, we all have this power. We have this magical power and we don't, most of us don't know how to channel it. But if we can, if we can really get in touch with ourselves, everything becomes an art at the end of the day, right, Arthur? 
It does. Yeah, life is so visual, isn't it? It's so visual. What, what did Shakespeare say? Shakespeare said, we're the, the world's a stage. We're all play. We're all merely players. We, our life is a play. It becomes a play as we open up. And the more, the more of our, the more windows and doors we open up in our, in our interior, the more our life opens up, the more avenues we get to, we get to go down and, and, and traverse and progress, you know? Incredible. Jack, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you, Arthur. Have a beautiful day.